HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Well, hello there. I just love my theme song. It was picked for me by Jack Inslee, uh, who is now DJing down at the um, at the Line Hotel in uh, Washington, D.C., where he is creating an amazing studio. But enough about that. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is number two in our series on the dairy industry, with which I am kicking off the new year. Um, and we're going to be talking today with uh, Peter C. Karstensen, who is a professor of law emeritus. Um, he's at the University of Wisconsin of Wisconsin Law School, where from 1993 to 2002, he served as Associate Dean for Faculty Research and Development. He's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin and received his law degree and master's degree in economics from Yale University. And from 1968 to 73, he was an attorney at the Antitrust Division of the United States Department of Justice assigned to the evaluation section, where one of his primary areas of work was on questions of relating competition policy and law to regulated industries. He has been a member of the faculty of the University of Wisconsin Law School since 1973, and he is a senior fellow of the American Antitrust Institute and an expert on the dairy industry. And this is like my favorite topic, and I'm so excited that you are here with us today. Thank you so much for joining me, Peter. Well, it's a delight to have a chance to talk about some of these issues that have interested me for years. Obviously. And just before we really get into the interview, why is it that antitrust is not on the tip of everyone's tongue when as when it comes to looking at how industries almost across the board are consolidating? I mean, you should well, be very, very busy, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's closer to the tip of the tongue these days than it has been for many, many years, we're seeing 
more activity in Congress, more public discussion about competition law, which is not to say it's there's sufficient concern and recognition of these issues, but more and more data is coming out, all kinds of empirical work showing the harms to consumers and producers that have resulted mm-hmm. from these increases in concentration and the allowance of anti-competitive uh, conduct by the courts. That's right. Um, so let's start by um, by just kind of taking listeners through what our antitrust laws and regulations have been, um, sort of like the history of the, the Clayton Act and the Capra-Volstead Act, uh, which is essentially what still regulates uh, antitrust law to this day. Isn't that right? Certainly in agriculture, these are very important issues. We always need to start with the Sherman Act, which was adopted in 1890 and has not been changed. It prohibits conspiracies and restraint of trade uh, or agreements that restrain trade Mm -hmm. uh, and also prohibits monopolization. Uh, The Clayton Act was adopted in uh, 1914 because of a feeling at the time that the Sherman Act was ineffective in protecting uh, consumers and producers from uh, abuses of market power. Its most important feature was a prohibition on any uh, uh, merger that may substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. Notice that's a much more inclusive standard. Unfortunately, because of the way the statute was drafted, it turned out to be totally ineffective (laughs) for the next 30, uh, uh, almost 40, well, really 40 years, 50 years. Uh, In 1950, Congress revised the statute to make it effective. It took another decade until the early 1960s for it to become operational uh, in terms of part interpretations. And for the next decade or so, we had a very robust merger enforcement program, which has then, uh, in my view, atrophied. We are not nearly as active in enforcing that. Um, Capra-Volstead is another uh, element here. Capra-Volstead was adopted in 1921 or 22. in response to many problems in American agriculture uh, and a concern that cooperatives might be regarded as violating the antitrust law. There's also the politics were that uh, Congress was being lobbied very vigorously to provide direct subsidies to farmers, and instead the conservative majority said, oh, no, we aren't going to do that, but we'll exempt you from antitrust law if you set up a cooperative. Some of those participating in the debate, especially Senator Norris of Nebraska, a leading progressive, pointed out that most cooperatives didn't violate the antitrust law anyway, so that it was not entirely clear what uh, farmers were getting as a result of that, of that statute. But its effect is that if a cooperative satisfies certain criteria, including having only farmer members, it can be exempted from uh, uh, antitrust law for its legitimate business activities, I believe, is is the way the Supreme Court has now interpreted that. Wow, fascinating. And wasn't the Sherman Act introduced um, largely to combat the consolidation of the meat industry in the 1890s? 
Or well, am certainly I wrong that about was that? a major factor. The uh-huh. Sherman Act was a response to uh, the Beef Trust, right. the Whiskey Trust, uh-huh. the uh, Tobacco Trust, uh, and of course Standard Oil, uh, the uh, 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 the. Oil and Gas Trust. Mm-hmm. There was also big concern about the dominance of International Harvester in the farm equipment mm-hmm. world. And the key political support for passing both the Sherman Act and then later the Clayton Act came from rural America. It mm-hmm. was uh, the agrarian states and congressmen and senators who were the leaders in getting those pieces of legislation adopted. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I mean, and now there's a whole different sort of power center uh, from that's dominating politics in those agrarian states that seems to have very little to do with uh, small-scale farming. But we digress. There is another statute I want you to talk about briefly, and that's the AMAA. Can you tell us what that is? <laughs> sure. Uh, that's the Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act, mm-hmm. and it was, it comes out of the uh, Great Depression of the 1930s. It was adopted by Congress uh, to facilitate two kinds of activities, one of which never really developed, which was private agreements among producers uh, of agricultural goods, essentially to create a cartel. Mm. The second prong of the AMAA was to authorize, with the approval and and under the supervision of the Secretary of Agriculture, the imposition of controls on the production of selected commodities. Um, Milk being the most prominent Mm -hmm. one, but it includes things like cranberries, pie cherries, a number of other uh, uh, commodities, potatoes. The Many of the major crops, corn, soybeans, cotton, were at that time given a um, uh, a specific uh, uh, subsidies. So Congress was appropriating uh, various kinds of, of payments to farmers on, on one set of agricultural commodities and then authorized uh, the creation of these controls and they can range and do range from efforts to set some standards of what's an acceptable uh, peach or pear or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, what's an appropriate measure of quantity. And that standardization is very helpful for farmers because then you can transact with others because everybody will know what the commodity, what they're getting when they order something, when they right. buy something uh, uh, long distance. It has also permitted various groups to set various kinds of output controls. There's no direct price fixing uh, authorized uh, that I know of in, under those statutes, but uh, they can, with the approval again of the Secretary of Agriculture, impose restrictions on output, that is how much you can sell into the market regardless of what you produce. Uh, and so it it can have... Uh, a series of anti-competitive effects from the from, from a consumer perspective of restricting access to commodities. Mm, thank you for explaining that. I hadn't actually quite understood it from your paper, so I'm glad. <laughs> now I feel like I have a little more of a grasp of the concept. Now let's talk a little bit about how, because I did read that paper that's on your website. Um, you you wrote a lot about sort of how. Uh, well, about monopoly and consolidation in many agricultural products. But 
including meat and dairy. And I guess what I want to get at here is how parallel or how many parallels do you see or how much similarity do you see between what is happening now and what happened to cause uh, Congress to pass these various statutes back at the turn of the 20th century? I'm kind of curious to see if we've really done a full 360 in terms of, you know, <laughs> everything old being new again in terms of monopolization of certain industries. It, would you say it's very similar now, or are there a lot of differences that you see? No, I, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We have gone, wasn't it, back to the future or something like that. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're back with an industry structure in meatpacking that is at least as concentrated as mm-hmm. that which we had um, uh, in the period uh, right around World War I, uh, when the Federal Trade Commission did a massive study of the meatpacking industry and found any number of major problems. Sure. Uh, dairy has become far more concentrated, even though we can move milk much greater distances now because of the highway system, uh, refrigerated trucks. So you could haul milk a long ways, and you'd think that might open markets up, from what had been very highly concentrated local markets. Instead, what we see is the same concentration mm-hmm. made worse because there's nobody who, when they see an overcharge uh, on consumers or underpayment to farmers, there's nobody out there that can make entry into that market area and capture the business that would otherwise be available to mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm getting from the farmers that I talk to. And also, and I, and I also see the parallels between the meat industry and the dairy industry seem like, you know, really in, irrefutable. And, but the only difference to me is that the beef industry specifically, for example, is not co-op. Meat people do not co-op. It's weird. They have the contract farming thing in the pork and poultry sectors. Beef is not so much. But they don't work as cooperatives in general. And I think that's kind of an interesting difference, even though they're so consolidated and dairy is so consolidated because of its co-ops, right? Am I making that up? But my understanding is like the Dairy Farms of America um, was meant to be sort of a mouthpiece for dairy farmers, and then it's turned into this gigantic, um, essentially price-controlling behemoth in the industry. And that, to me, seems very similar to what's happened in the meat industry. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, just to start with with meatpacking, involves more capital investment. Um, There are are some cooperative slaughterhouses out Mm. there. There's at least one in Iowa. I think there's one cooperative pork uh, uh, processor. Uh, There was... uh, Another major one that went bankrupt because management uh, speculated in fertilizer, and then uh, Smithfield (laughs) was allowed to buy the well Nyman Ranch assets. Nyman Ranch Uh, is a co-op, for example. That's a quite a big Nyman Ranch is a big and successful co-op, actually. Yeah. So, so there are, but they've not had the same impact. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say in meatpacking. Interestingly, meat uh, in the meat world somewhat comparable to the um, Capra-Volstead, there's another statute that we haven't mentioned, which is the Packers and Sackyards Act oh, right, of course. that Congress adopted to regulate the process of marketing uh, uh, livestock. Mm-hmm. And uh, the courts have gutted that one yes. to deny uh, 
uh, meat packers, uh, 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 cattle feeders, and uh, uh, poultry producers the uh, the desired protection from unfair uh, behavior. So it's kind of the history of the two industries in terms of meatpacking as we go forward from, say, 1900, already having a highly concentrated business operation. Dairy, because it was much more localized, mm-hmm. had more, had made much, there was much more use made of cooperatives, I should add, going back to meat, uh, especially beef and pork, there was a whole uh, uh, marketing system through stockyards so Mm -hmm. that there was a way for many years for producers to get the benefit of a workably competitive market for their animals uh, that um, really didn't exist for dairy farmers. So that's why they Uh tended to do two things to set up various kinds of marketing co-ops to market their their milk to um, fluid milk processors, the, you know, the milk we drink. Right. And also they set up co-ops to make cheese or other uh, manufactured goods mm-hmm. from, uh, from milk. Uh, and those, you know, the local cheese, again, because of how far you could haul milk on the bad roads that existed before, say, at least the 1940s. Mm-hmm. The cheese companies were small operations. You set up a co-op, you had a cheesemaker, you'd have 10 or 15 farms contributing milk to that to that co-op. So it was mm-hmm. a, a very different um, uh, infrastructure situation uh, through uh, into uh, the post-World War II era, at that point, we begin to see both the consolidation of the milk processing uh, uh, business and consolidation at the retail grocery store level. And it's important to understand, if you've got fewer and fewer grocery chains, you've got fewer and fewer potential buyers right. of uh, fluid milk, and that induces reduction in competition in the milk processing part of the market, which then reduces the number of buyers of milk available to farmers, uh, uh, at least for for fluid milk. Right. And so you get this kind of concentration feeds back, you close out small cheese factories, then the farmer, it's harder and harder for a farmer to have a milk operation if they don't have viable outlets. Right. So that it's a whole cascade of consolidation from retail to processing, and then the farmer faces increasingly limited uh, uh, opportunity. Mm -hmm. In that context, then, the marketing-type cooperatives uh, began to consolidate, and out of that emerged the Dairy Farmers of America, DFA, which has... Last time I heard, it had more than 20,000 members spread across the United States. Uh, it is the dominant uh, milk cooperative, and in many areas, it has effective control over access to milk so that any small cooperative has to w- work through DFA in order to sell its milk. Wow. So can they, 
can they do what processors can do to um, dairy? You know, so in other words, like if you're a processor and you don't like the pro- the price of meat that you're being offered, like say you're a rancher and you bring in your cattle and they say, well, okay, we're going to give you 12 cents a pound for this. And you're like, what? <laughs> um you know, and then they really don't have any place else to go to process their meat, so they have to sell it at twelve cents a pound. That's what's happened in the in the meat industry. I actually did write a little yeah. book about this, so I'm pretty cool about the meat. But I, I'm so fascinated by the parallels between the way these two industries have consolidated. Yeah. And so, then is that the same thing that happens with people who sign up with Dairy Farmers of America? Basically, they have no other place to go with their fluid milk. So they have to sign a contract with Dairy Farmers of America. They become a co-op member. And then they, again, are, okay, price of fluid milk, 15 cents a pound. What? (laughs) But where else are you going to go with it unless you just have raw milk and sell it at the farmer's market, which I don't even, in many states, you can't even do that. Right, right. And if you run a substantial dairy, you, you don't have... You can't do that because you simply have got too much volume. Right. Uh, it's a little different in dairy. That is, what happens is uh, what has happened is the DFA has gotten exclusive supply contracts with the yogurt makers, the big cheese makers, the big mm. uh, Dean uh, Dairy uh, Hood, etc. Right. <clears throat> Which means that other cooperatives with <clears throat> that represent small groups of farmers mm-hmm. have no place to sell their milk mm-hmm. uh, until they make a deal with DFA. In some cases, they are allowed to retain their, quote, independence, unquote, but they have become part of uh, uh, a joint dairy marketing uh, uh, enterprise, which... Uh, is managed by DFA and, so, and and serves DFA's interests. In some circumstances, I am told, DFA has literally told a co-op, your members are going to now become DFA members, you're going to go out of business. Um, wow. So it has used its power that way. In terms of pricing, <clears throat> there are some protections <clears throat> in that the price for, <coughs> excuse me, the oh. price for milk is set in uh, base price for milk is set through a series of pricing formulas. This goes back to the AMAA, the, mm-hmm. uh, the Agricultural Marketing uh, Agreement Act, which, if dairy farmers agree that they want a market order, the market order specifies that the USDA sets a base price for milk. And then milk used for fluid, or what we drink, carries a premium with it that is quite substantial in some states. So that there's a, a kind of floor of the pricing, except that the co-op is deemed to be the seller of the milk that gets the benefit of those prices. Uh-huh. It then passes payments back to farmers' net of various charges. And that's where the problems have been highlighted in terms of uh, potential abuse of farmers by, as a result of excessive charges for the testing of milk. You've got to test milk to make sure it's clean, that it sure. has the right um, 
con- uh, right, fat content, etc. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, there's a premium paid for milk that has particular characteristics over and above the the set price. Uh, there are some other things that get involved here that bother me greatly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when there's insufficient supply of milk within one of these order areas, it is permitted to bring milk in, to truck it in from outside. Those That milk is paid the, the same price that it is paid, that is paid for milk produced within the order area. And if you are in Wisconsin with relatively low order prices, and you can ship it into the southeast United States, which has very high order prices, you stand to make a lot of money, and they will often reimburse, or the the order farmers have to also pay the cost of shipping. Wow. So it's, uh, and, and DFA has in the past been accused, and I, uh, everything I've seen suggests that some of this is fairly accurate, uh, of manipulating uh, the supply of milk and favoring its friends, and in some cases having milk shipped from quite substantial distance into one of these higher price order areas, rather than moving milk from the next closest area so you have a kind of you could have had a cascading effect that would have kept costs down and would have made sure that farmers in the more immediate area were being rewarded when there was uh, uh, an actual or a claimed shortage of milk mm-hmm. so you're saying that they will take milk from a farther distance place they will bring it into a high price place but they actually extract the cost of shipping and cost of testing and probably other marketing costs that we're not discussing here. And then that sort of, you know, Midwest farmer will basically get the same crummy price that the guys down in the Southeast would get anyway. Is that, is, am well, I understanding that correctly? Yeah, except so the, the guys D, in the, the Southeast DFA would is, get a better price. Than the, the, oh, they would get uh, a better uh, price. Keeping because, the milk in Wisconsin. Right, because they wouldn't so pay the for the shipping. The Wisconsin guy is better off if he's favored by DFA to ship his milk to um, South Carolina, oh, I see. Okay. then if he has to sell it for use in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, if the problem is that sometimes there's actually a there has actually may have been a sufficient supply of milk in the southeast, and so instead of those farmers getting the benefit uh-huh. of uh, having more of their milk going for the premium. Uh, uh, usage, they get only you know sixty seventy percent of their milk used for that. Thirty percent gets sold for cheese or other at the national price. There's a single price for all milk used for purposes other than fluid. So mm-hmm. that's what harms the southeast farmer uh, or the New England farmer relative to some big operation in Indiana or or Michigan or Wisconsin that can, uh, or in some cases, New Mexico uh, <clears throat> was shipping milk into the southeast. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's more the adverse effect on the farmer in the, dairy farmer in the area where the milk is being shipped, rather because the, the shipping comp, uh, farmer is being made better off. Wow. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. Um, Peter, stay with us, and we're going to have a little sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back to talk more about this, because this is really a very complex um, set of (laughs) equations that you're presenting me with. (laughs) So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Peter. uh, Okay. (laughs) Thank you, with Peter Carstensen. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Professor of Law Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin Law School, Peter C. Karstensen. And we're taking apart the dairy industry. This is uh, part two of a, well, I don't know how many parts it's going to be, actually. (laughs) I'm still lining up the guests, but believe me, we're going to take a deep dive into this industry because it's really a major part of American agricultural efforts, and um, somehow dairy farmers are disappearing. And they're losing money, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on out there. So, um, Peter, let's go back to the DFA, to the dairy co-ops, uh, the DFA, Dairy Farmers of America. It's the biggest co-op in America. But so, how is it that that dairy co-op seems to be, you know, essentially screwing its members, but other dairy co-ops seem to be doing great things for their members? Like I'm thinking Organic Valley, for example. Would you consider them a good co-op or a bad co-op, or neither? Um, from what I, I mean, again, it's always what you know at a distance, and then you need to, you know, when you get in uptight, there may yeah. be more issues. But certainly, Organic Valley has a pretty good reputation, as best I know, mm-hmm. for serving its members' interests well and carefully. Uh, and a number of co-ops do. Sure. Uh, 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 oh, is it something like Landmark? Uh, uh, that in Maryland draws heavily on Amish dairy Amish dairy farmers uh-huh. up into Pennsylvania as good operations. So, yeah, you can have a good co-op. The the problem, as I've looked at it with very large co-ops, is that is the sort of separation of ownership from control. Yeah. You've got a set of managers who really are not very accountable to their to their mm-hmm. members 
because the members, again, 23,000 members, one vote each member, mm-hmm. um, uh, a very complex voting system, very poor uh, 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 reporting of detailed accounting data. There are all kinds of questions really? out there about the actual economic situation, financial situation of DFA, but it's impossible to get information. Even if you had that information, trying to organize some kind of a proxy contest where you've got 23,000 people, each with one vote, and nobody able really, you know, in, in the corporate world, somebody can say, I want to take over this enterprise, and I can make a lot of money. Well, that can't be done in a co-op situation, so that it's... you. It's very ineffective governance, which means that when you get to be a very large enterprise with no supervision, there is no supervision at the USDA, there is no supervision through the states, so that they are essentially not accountable, even though there's some authority in the Secretary of Agriculture that could have possibly been used to make co-ops more accountable. Um, it's it's not been used as, uh, uh, especially accountable in the context of the use of the uh, Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're left with a situation where if there is honorable management that is devoted to the best interest of the members, things go forward. When you have more questionable management uh, that may be both self-seeking and wanting to advance the interest of its friends, then you wind up with really bad situations. Which is what seems to be happening at Dairy Farms, because there was a big article in which you were quoted at the in the Washington Monthly this month um, by Leah Douglas that was really excellent. And... Um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you were quoted in that article as saying that the Department of Justice is absolutely petrified of the dairy industry, and that's the only explanation for their failure to enforce antitrust law. So DFA, and in that article, Leah Douglas lays out essentially the what appears to me the financial shenanigans of the DFA management team or executive team in which they are, you know, building themselves these gigantic fancy offices and taking home gigantic amounts of money and getting golden parachutes right and left. And meanwhile, dairy farmers, even though they're members of that co-op, are not getting higher prices for their milk. And so I want to go back. We're going to talk about the DOJ in a minute, but I just want to go back for a second and talk about a little bit more about how those cooperatives control price and output for dairy farmers, because that's something that I am really curious about. I know that um, there's milk dumping going on to keep prices stable. I'm not quite sure how the farm bill fits into the pricing of dairy commodities. Um, Can you sort of unpack a little bit of that for us? Okay. One part here is, again, that this federal marketing order system depends for, for its basing price. The base price is, is derived from the price of cheese. The price of cheese, is, and this is primarily the dominant kind of cheese is cheddar, yeah. the price of that cheese is set uh, by the, a, a, a set of transactions uh, on the Chicago Board of Trade, or yeah. Chicago Mercantile Exchange, I right, should say, right. yep. which has the 
has a cheese auction. Um, I think it's daily. It lasts about half an hour. Wow. Uh, handles a you know, infinitely small percentage of cheese actually moves through that market. But that's the price-making source. Ah. What that means is that you can go in and manipulate the price of cheese by buying or selling cheese uh, or cheese futures, cheese contracts on that uh, 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 exchange. Uh, historically, it had been, uh, uh, the exchange had been up at in Green Bay, um, where Interestingly, Kraft, mm-hmm. which buys uh, about 30% of the cheese purchased in America, but it was a big seller on the Green Bay Exchange, affecting the price of cheese, driving it down, which, of course, then affected the price of milk. Sure. Uh, uh, Willard Mueller, uh, uh, very distinguished agricultural uh, economist, antitrust economist, put together that story led to some, uh, some litigation, showed how that manipulation worked. Um, as a result, they closed the Green Bay Exchange, moved it down to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the evidence is that, mm, that the price of cheese on that exchange correlates at you know, 99.9% or something like that with the price that the USDA comes up with nominally by interviewing a bunch of cheese makers as to what price they're getting for cheese. Uh, So the incentives now are for DFA at various times to manipulate upward or downward the price of cheese on that exchange. They've been nailed uh, for uh, some other milk contracts that they manipulated uh, uh, there's been a good deal of discussion of their cheese buying practices, again, to raise price or to lower price, depending on the incentives of DFA as an enterprise as opposed to the interests of dairy farmers. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, you know, it's just I'm, I'm trying to make that connection between how you you become a marketing enterprise determining milk prices and cheese prices when you're theoretically supposed to be serving the interests of your co-op members. I don't, you know, it's clearly something is very askew there. Would you agree with that? Yes. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it would be very desirable to have a very, uh, very thoughtful review of how you price milk. I know that various uh, economists and people with interest in the dairy industry have come up with alternative ways to do the pricing, so it would be less manipulatable uh-huh. uh, and move us towards a better system. Uh, again, looking at some of the contracting, uh, wherever there's an order, the um, Department of Agriculture could prohibit exclusive dealing contracts, Mm -hmm. or could require that no cooperative have more than X percent of of supply contracts in a marketing order Mm -hmm. to ensure greater opportunity for different suppliers. Um, There's there's a lot of reforms that could be done, but it would require the political will to go forward and and actually do some of those things. Well, there okay, so now we are arriving at that question about, you know, first of all, your quote about the DOG G, DOJ being absolutely petrified of the dairy industry. <clears throat> why do you say that? What do you think? I mean, what what is the why do you say that? 
Why do you think they're petrified? (laughs) I say that because of the history. And Mm -hmm. it isn't the dairy industry at large. It's DFA. Okay. Uh, They did take on DFA in one case involving the acquisition of a small dairy in Kentucky where they used their appellate brief to disclose some of the misconduct that was then going on in in DFA. But with that, that's the that's the exception. Yeah. Uh, uh, the um, the staff at DOJ, every it is understood. Okay, I've never seen the documents. I'm never going to see the documents. But yeah. it is understood that the staff attorney, uh, having conducted a major investigation, recommended a major lawsuit. This is in the Bush uh, uh, administration uh-huh. era, uh, and was was shut down and fired. Oh uh, yeah. And ultimately made a settlement where, uh, as I understand it, where he got some significant compensation. Career guy. Uh, yeah, right, right. Uh, uh, but under a confidentiality order, so mm-hmm. he's not to tell us anything about what he learned. Uh, the Southeast antitrust case came out of that where, after the private lawyers had put it together, one of those lawyers said to me at one point, you know, this is not just an antitrust violation. This is a felony of, uh, that's going on. Wow. Uh, they went in and made a presentation to the Justice Department, um, and the Justice Department did nothing. Wow. Um, Even under the Obama? Forward, I'm, I'm not going to be able to place that for sure, whether that's late Bush or early Obama. Mm-hmm. We certainly know, because the basis of both the Southeast private case and the New England private case was the Justice Department's internal records. Uh, those resulted in uh, many millions of dollars of settlement, not very good long-term relief because private lawyers are not well positioned to demand uh, uh, really good long-term restructuring uh, uh, kind of relief. Uh, come forward into the Obama administration, Christine Varney uh, initially indicated that uh, she was the first assistant attorney general for antitrust, uh-huh. that she was really going to focus in on uh, uh, co-ops and how they were behaving. And there's a mushroom co-op that got that did get sued, actually, under the... I think that was the case was actually brought in the Bush administration. There were investigations in eggs, potatoes, yep. <clears throat> quite possibly in dairy, uh, in, uh, in at least a new one in dairy. And uh, Assistant Attorney General Varney made some statements about concern about how Capra-Volstead was being interpreted and the conduct of, of co-ops, and enormous political pressure was uh-huh. brought to bear. My understanding, and again, this is only, you know, this is what in the law we would call hearsay because yeah. I was told but this was what was going on. Um, it was orchestrated by DFA to bring uh, an enormous amount of political pressure to shut down the government's interest in in co-ops. We know that, in fact, uh, Attorney General Holder, uh, um, uh, Assistant Attorney General Varney, pulled back and... Uh-huh. Uh, pulled out of doing anything despite having a whole series of workshops in 2010 on 
in, uh, on agricultural issues. Mm-hmm. They they pulled back, uh, mm-hmm. and I I know from this I I have heard a little more directly a, a staffer for for a senator who did his that senator's ag work telling me that after the Varney uh, indication of concern. The phone was ringing off the hook wow. uh, by people calling in, and this is the end of all agriculture. You're going to kill the world if you don't <laughs> stand back. So the <coughs> political lesson was pull back, pull back. Yeah. Don't do anything. Uh, DFA has got some enormous political strength. It's not out there in public, but they've got congressmen and senators who are clearly their friends and will carry water for them mm-hmm. and threaten agencies that try to control what they're doing. This affects the USDA right. uh, <clears throat> interest in using its market order authority to control things. Um, uh, so uh, that's uh, just so obvious, especially given the information that we have that has been disclosed in the various lawsuits, information about how DFA has behaved over the last 15 years, not to have had any government uh, antitrust division enforcement effort is is a sign that they're just scared out of their wits of taking on something that is an entity that is this politically powerful. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of just how much money they are throwing at these uh, elected representatives in order to maintain their control over um, <clears throat> pricing and, you know, farming in general like that. And, and it's not, obviously, it's not just the dairy industry. The meat industry is the same. The pharmaceutical industry yep. is the same. I mean, this is across agriculture. It's pretty much the same story. Um, and it's it's just astonishing, uh, you know. Until we get, basically, it comes down to until we get money out of politics, this is going to keep <laughs> yes. going. Yeah. Isn't that no, right? It, 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 That's the solution, essentially. Yeah, and, and it is very very troubling. The, um, uh, for example, late in the Obama administration, they finally put through some basic protections for meat and poultry. Yeah, uh, uh, producers that, rever- that would have reversed some indefensibly bad decisions in the Court of Appeals. Right. Uh, and That was the those... GIPSA, what was going on with GIPSA, right? With the Great uh, yeah, Inspection and Stock Carriage Act. It was a, it was a revamp and of no that. No sooner did the Republicans yeah. uh, uh, come to office than those uh, uh, provisions were pulled back Immediately. and eliminated. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's just very sad that basic protections cannot be provided uh, uh, at this point because of what seems to me to be gross misrepresentations about what's going on. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it at there. Um, this is your opportunity to promote yourself shamelessly, so go right ahead. Uh, if you have things that you would like people to read or more information about this topic that they can uh, elicit from you or or some cause you want to you know, support, go ahead. Now's the moment. <laughs> well, I can say we just I just published a book called Competition Policy Yay. and the Control of Buyer Power, a Global Issue, that is an effort to try to bring together what we <clears throat> what we know about and what we ought to do about mm-hmm. the abuses of buyer power. It's 
terribly, terribly important in agriculture. What we've been yeah. talking about, whether you're a meat pack, a meat of uh, uh, a dairy farmer, a cattle feeder, a hog feeder, right. a poultry producer, but it goes all across our economy. Yes, there are uh, all kinds of suppliers who are being abused uh, 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 in a world in which enforcement agencies don't seem to care very much about increased concentration in buyer power. Yeah. Uh, so that that's my hobby horse these days mm-hmm. has been to keep saying we've really got to see our antitrust enforcement be as concerned with harm to producers as with harm uh, uh, to consumers. Yes. And the ideology of antitrust as it stands today is somehow tied tightly to something that's called consumer welfare, and therefore we leave out harms to producers from consideration. And that's a a deep and profound er, uh, error, as we talked about. Farmers were primary advocates for the antitrust laws because of their concerns they were adopted. And farmers... Uh, are prime are concerned deeply concerned with the harms to them that result from buyer power. Yes. So it's trying to get greater focus on the buyer power issues is is one of my big big concerns. Well, we're gonna days. we're gonna come we're, send me your book. I will send you an email and let you know where to send it. And we will uh, I will read it and we will talk about your book after I'm done okay. with this dairy series. Thank you so very much, Peter Carstensen, for being on my program. I enjoyed our discussion immensely, and I'm terribly grateful to you for helping us understand some of these underlying complex issues that <clears throat> explain why rural America is essentially failing for no particular reason other than consolidation. Um, so uh, until next time, folks, thanks for listening. Thank you very much to my sponsor, The Hearst Ranch, and um, we'll be back next week with another great show. Thanks for listening. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.